Good morning. We've been studying through the book of Acts for the past few months, and we've reached the point now where Paul wrote his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. So today, we're going to do an overview of that book. First of all, Thessalonica was a city in northern Greece, relatively prosperous city, but like all the other cities in the area, most of the people were part of a pagan religion. They worshipped gods like the people we saw in Lystra back in Acts chapter 14, gods like Zeus and Hermes. And in fact, Thessalonica was only 50 miles away from Mount Olympus, which is where the gods were believed to have lived. So it would have been a constant reminder to them of their religion. So this is the city that Paul came to. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we read about Paul's arrival there. He was traveling through northern Greece, preaching the gospel as he went, And when he came to Thessalonica, he went and preached in the synagogue. There was a community of the Jews there. And that was what Paul did did many times. He went and preached in the synagogue for three weeks. And some people believed, but it was mainly the Greeks and not the Jews who believed. And in fact, the Jews who didn't believe, if you'll remember, actually stirred up a riot. They didn't find Paul, but they were able to convince the authorities that it wasn't a good idea for Paul to remain in the city. So... Paul had to leave. Now, there's an infant church there, a group of baby believers, and Paul has to leave. I'd like you to picture yourself for a second here as one of those believers. Paul's walking down the road. He's leaving Thessalonica. You're on your own now. You're alone. You don't know when Paul will return, if ever. All that you have is what Paul has been able to explain in the past few weeks. He was there for at least three weeks, maybe more, maybe up to three months, but certainly no longer than that. Now, what are you going to do if you get confused? What's going to happen if you believe one thing, you believe Paul said one thing, another believer remembers something different? Who's going to say who's right? For example, we know that the Thessalonians were were getting confused about what happened when people died. They knew that God was going to come back for them to take them to be with him. But what had happened to those believers who had died? Are they just gone? Are they going to miss out? And then teachers come in, teachers who claim that Paul was wrong. And in fact, not only was Paul mistaken, he was actually teaching you this message in order to create a following, to build up a following for himself. Now, why should you be why should you be believing this? And on top of all this, There's the persecution that's going on. We just saw the beginning of it when when Paul was there, the Jews that stirred up the riot there. In fact, they followed Paul to the next city that he went to, and they stirred up a riot there, and they forced Paul to leave there. Can you imagine what it would have been like back in Thessalonica when these Jews came home? I will guarantee you they wanted to stamp out all Christianity in their city. And it wasn't just the Jews. We learned from Paul's letter that it was these people's own countrymen, their friends, their family, who were persecuting them. You've probably lost your job. You've lost any position in society you had. No one wants to associate with you anymore. No one wants to be around you, be with you. It's probably gotten physical if you're out in a dark alley by yourself at night. You'd probably get beaten up. And in fact, we were talking about those believers who had died. They may have died as a result of the persecution. So you can imagine that within a few months, this church could be just falling apart. Perhaps there's only a few people left who still call themselves Christians and they aren't even meeting together anymore. 
And you see, Paul knew about all of these things that could happen. He knew about all this, but he didn't know what had happened. These are people he had poured his life into. For, for the brief time that he was there, he had seen them saved, he had seen them begin to grow, but then he had to leave, and, he'd heard, and he had heard nothing since. He had to know what was going on. He couldn't go back himself. So what he did was he sent Timothy. Timothy was one of the brothers who was traveling with him. And Paul instructed Timothy to go back and encourage the believers, but also to get a report and see what was going on and tell Paul. So Timothy did this. He came back to Paul. And now Paul, knowing what was going on, sat down and wrote a letter. And this is the, uh, Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. If you're not already there, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The first thing you'll see in the beginning of verse 1 is that Paul includes the two other brothers who were traveling with him. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. Silas was Paul's co-worker. Paul and Silas had started the journey together back in Turkey, and they had gone on the, gone on the whole trip together. Timothy was a young believer whom Paul and Silas had picked up in Turkey. And what's special about Timothy is that Paul could trust him, remember as we just saw, to bring him this report. That's not an easy task. Think about what Timothy had to do. He had to go back and discern what was going on in this church and then bring back and tell Paul an accurate report. Now, what did Timothy say? We'll see when we get into it here. Before I actually get into what Paul had to say, let me give you a brief outline so you can see where we're going. Chapters 1 through 3 are a very close and intimate section where Paul really explains his relationship with the believers. It's a very close, and he shows his love and his care for them. Chapters 4 and 5 are a more practical section. Paul has to deal with some sins that are becoming a problem in the church and some doctrines that the believers are getting confused about. So back to chapter 1. The first, the first thing Paul does in verse 2 is he gives thanks to God for them, particularly in verse 3, 4, well, let's read it. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Your work of faith, that's trusting God regardless of the circumstances. Labor of love is care for the other believers. Patience of hope is uh, waiting expectantly for God, knowing that one day he will come to take us back home to be with him. Now, if this was going on in the church, the church can't be doing too badly. So at least there is a church here left in Thessalonica. Verses 4 through 6, Paul speaks of the certainty of their salvation. He wanted to encourage them that the message they believed was true and that they really were saved. One of the clear evidences of this was the work that the Holy Spirit was doing in their life. Paul mentions the Holy Spirit twice, once in verse 5 and once in verse 6. Let's read verse 6 here. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. The only reason for the joy that these believers had in spite of all their persecution was that the Holy Spirit had given it to them. And the understanding they had. Paul had been with them for only this brief time, and yet they'd been able to understand so much about the gospel and, in fact, so much about living the Christian life. In chapters 4 and 5, we'll see Paul constantly refers back to things he had spoken to them about while he was in Thessalonica. The fact that they had been able to understand these things, discern them, and make them part of their lives is, again, an evidence that the Holy Spirit was working in them. 
Then verses 8 and 9, Paul describes what happened after their salvation. Let's read it. Let's read both verses here. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, these believers were sharing with everyone. Macedonia is northern Greece, where they were at, the whole area, and Achaia is southern Greece. But then Paul says, also in every place. Who knows where else these believers were going, just sharing the good news that they had. And the church can't be doing that badly. If the believers are this eager to share the good news that they have, it must be at least somewhat right. And look at the testimony they had in verse 9. Everyone was was amazed how you turned to God from idols. They turned from the religion of their parents, their grandparents for hundreds of years before them by this message that Paul gave them. They turned to serve, as Paul says, the living and true God. Then chapter 2, Paul begins to, Paul describes himself, the way that he brought the gospel to the Thessalonians and his, his actions, his attitude while he was with them. Now, why would Paul put a section like this in the letter? What he's doing, he's caring for the believers in a different way. He wants to give them an example. You see, he could, he could tell them what it is to, to live the Christian life, to do good, but if he can point to an example, if he can point to himself and say, live like me, that's so much stronger. And his own life is one of the very few things that he can point to. And you have to remember when we're going through here, the beginning of chapter 2, this is just words on a page for us, but for the Thessalonians, when Paul describes the way he was among them, it would have brought back a flood of memories for them. So verse 5, he actually begins by defending himself. Remember, I said there were teachers who were coming in trying to discredit Paul. So he has to show that this is the farthest thing from his mind. Look what he says. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. This was, his heart was completely in a different, in a different place. Let's look at verses 7 through 9 and see what his attitude really was. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. For laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preached to you the gospel of God. You see, he's describing his care for them in the same way that a mother cares for her, for, for her own children. That's the depth of his care. And in fact, it makes sense here. Verse 8, while he was there, he didn't just share the gospel. His whole life was devoted to them for the time that he was with them. And besides the preaching and teaching that he did in verse 9, he was actually working to take care of his, for his own living. So that no one, so that he wouldn't be a burden to any of the, any of the people while he was there. Then, verse 11. He describes his care for them as a father. In verse 7, it was as a mother. In verse 11, it's as a father. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. He wants these, he is encouraging his believers as much as he can to follow the Lord. Then the next section, Paul wants to encourage the believers. He's talking more about what happened after they were saved and he wants to encourage them. So look what he says in verse 14. 
For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. You see, he's telling them about the persecution that's going on, and he's saying this is not something unusual. The churches back in Judea are going through the same thing. They're following the Lord, and they're being persecuted for it. So you shouldn't really be surprised. This is what is to be expected. Now, beginning in verse 17, all the way through the end of chapter 3, we get into a really special section, a really deep section. Paul describes to the Thessalonians what happened after he left the, after he left the city. Let's read verses 17 through 20. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. You see, after he leaves, these believers are constantly on his mind. He's continuing on his journey, preaching, teaching, seeing souls saved. But these believers and what they're doing, it's never far away from his thoughts. And he can't return to them. He's helpless to do anything for them while he's away from them. Why is this so critical to him? Verses 19 and 20. You see, these believers are the most important thing to Paul. They are his highest priority. What he wants more than anything is to see them in Jesus' presence when he returns. So what can he do? Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it. You see, it's gotten to the point now where he has to do something. He can't just let things go on the way they are. He has to do something for these believers. So, what does he do? Well, we already know, but let's go ahead and read it anyway. We thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. Don't you think it would have been more difficult for, for Paul once Timothy was gone? Timothy was helping him doing, do this work with the other believers that he was seeing saved. But Paul had to do it. You see, it's more important for him to have Timothy leave, to have Timothy go find out. It has to be done. And he, he once again tells his reasons in verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. He knows what's going on, and he, and he has to make sure that they're doing okay. But then Timothy brought back his report, and Paul was overjoyed. Let's read verses 6 through 8 and see finally what Timothy brought back. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. You see, Timothy's report was that these believers were doing well. In spite of everything that was going on in Thessalonica, they were trusting God, they were growing in him, and even more than that, Paul, uh, Timothy says they want to see Paul just like he wants to see them. What else could Paul have wanted for? And you see, Paul's comforted by this news. Look at verse 7. His joy is linked to their own well-being. In, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. That's how much he cares about them. His joy is dependent on what, ha what happens to them. In fact, it's even deeper than that. Read verse 8. Now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. His life is dependent on what they do. That's how deep his care is for them. 
and you can see his joy just overflows. He is, he, his joy, it's because this church that he was so concerned about that we were seeing so many problems could have happened to it. It hasn't collapsed. It hasn't even faltered. In fact, this is a strong, healthy, vibrant church in Thessalonica. The believers love one another. They're sharing the gospel. And look at Paul's joy here in verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith? Paul still wants to see the believers, but there's no more of the deep concern, no more of the fear that he had for them before. He still wants to see them, but now it's to help them know the Lord better. Any time he could spend with them, he would turn to their benefit as much as he could. And then Paul prays for them right in the middle of the letter. This is what he wants for them. He wants to see them again, just like he said before, but he wants them to grow in their walk with the Lord so that when they stand before Jesus, they will be blameless in his sight. Then at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul says, finally. Now, he's not saying finally in the sense of now, to conclude. I'm finishing up here. Instead, he's saying, finally, I've said what's on my mind. He's gotten everything off of his off his mind, everything that was the most important uh, to him. But he's still got some practical issues that need to be dealt with. The first one that he begins with is sexual immorality. And it really shouldn't surprise us too much. These people are in a big city that would be just like living in San Francisco. Immorality is part of the life there. And for the Thessalonians, in fact, it had been part of their old religion. So it really shouldn't surprise us that they're having a problem in this area. So Paul says, let's read verse 3, what he, what he instructs them. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, sanctification means being set apart, being set apart from sin, being set apart to God, to be devoted to him, to live for him. And it makes sense. If we are to be sanctified, if we're to be set apart to God, then we should definitely not be using our bodies for anything apart from what God has provided for in marriage. And so Paul makes it very clear that this is uh, no small matter. Verse 6, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Now, let's think about what Paul means here for a second, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. He means here that God will take the cause of the person who has been wronged and work against the one who has done this. This is not something that God considers a small matter. Then, verses 9 and 10, Paul brings up a brighter side. He encourages the believers, in fact, for their love. They're doing quite well in this area. But he doesn't want them to rest, to relax, think they're perfect now. He wants them to grow more and more. Look at what he says in verse 10. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who were in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. And then he follows it up with a little bit of a concern here. Apparently, some of the believers were interfering in other people's lives. In fact, to the extent that they weren't even taking care of what they needed to in their own lives. So Paul has some very simple and some very direct instruction in verse 11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now, verses or chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11, Paul talks about Jesus' second coming. And this is because the Thessalonians were getting confused about several issues here. The first one we already mentioned. They don't know what happened 
when believers die. They're concerned maybe they're just gone. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll just be left in the grave when the Lord comes back to take those in his second coming. And you can, under, you can understand they're, they're really waiting for the second coming of the Lord through this persecution. They're, they're really expecting it. But it's not quite what it used to be because they're getting confused. So Paul has to explain to them what, what the Lord will do. Let's read verses 13 through 18 here. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then... We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You can imagine those who had lost loved ones, those who had lost maybe parents or children, they've just got to be broken up about this. They don't know what's going on. So Paul, he says, don't sorrow as others who have no hope. Instead, he, he explains to them, because Jesus rose from the dead, he won't allow believers to remain in the grave either. In fact, he says in verse 16 that Jesus will descend from heaven. He will raise the believers who are dead, give them new bodies, and then we will all meet the Lord in the air and we'll be with him forever. And he says, comfort one another with these words. Really, you can see that Jesus takes such good care of his church. What a comfort, huh? Then, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul's still talking about Jesus' second coming here, but it's a little bit of a different subject. He's talking here about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment on the earth. It's associated with Jesus' second coming, but it is a time you do not want to be on the earth. Read about it in Revelation. There are famines, plagues, natural disasters of all kinds, sin just let loose on the earth, anarchy and murder are commonplace, and the Thessalonians, they know about this time that's coming, and they don't know whether they're going to go through it. You can see they have this hope in the Lord. They know they're going to be with him, but they're afraid that this is going to be happening beforehand. And if, if they're, look, they're looking forward to the Lord's coming, but this beforehand, there's got to be some fear in that. So Paul has to explain to them that this is not going to happen to us. We are going to be taken away to be with the Lord before any of this happens. Here's how he does it. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. Well, verse 2. For you yourselves know that the day of the Lord so comes, as a, so comes as a thief in the night. Now, a thief never comes for a good reason. A thief always comes for harm. And in fact, this, the way this thief comes is sudden destruction. It's the day of the Lord. As he says in verse 3. But look at who he's referring to in verse 3. This is who this sudden destruction happens to. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. You see, it's not going to happen to us. It's not going to happen to believers. It's going to happen to unbelievers. And he makes it clear in verses 4 and 5 that we are totally separate from these people. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Since we are separate from, th from this, since we're not going to be looking forward to this judgment then, what should our attitude be? Paul uses this illustration that he's got 
of day and light versus night and darkness, and he carries it a step further. What happens during the night? Well, let's see here, verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. What happens at night? People sleep, people get drunk, and we should, our attitude should be just the opposite. Let us watch, be alert, and be sober, be self-controlled. We sh- while we're here on the earth, we should be living for the Lord in what time we have. And then he says in verse 11 again, therefore comfort each other. What a comfort. Let's look back at it. Jesus is coming back for us. Whether we're alive or dead, he's going to take us to be with him. We're going to be spared from all of this judgment that's going to come on the earth. And then we will be with Jesus forever. What a, what a great comfort, huh? Then, verses 12 through 22, we have a really dense section here. Paul brings up a series of other points. Each one of these is really a section unto itself. They're, they're all about how to have a healthy church. Let's just read through verses 16 through 22. And remember, each one of these, each one of these is a separate thought. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, let's go back. Let's let's look at a few of these and see what Paul is saying. Verses 12 and 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. You see, Paul is urging the brethren here to respect the leadership. During the short time that this church has been around, there have already been leaders appointed, elders here. And these are people who, they have the heart of Paul. They're caring for the church. They're, making, they're helping the believers in the church to grow, be built up, but they're also keeping anything harmful from getting into the church. And during a time like this, that would be particularly good. And so Paul says, in verse 13, to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. You see, anything short of love for what, these belie- for what these believers are doing for the church, it would really be ungrateful. Then let's look at verses 16 through 18. Paul has three things here that the Thessalonians should be doing all the time. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And you can imagine... This, these things probably would be difficult for the Thessalonians to do, just to think about these things. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, maybe. In everything, give thanks. That would be tough. But you see, if you look at things from God's point of view, the trouble that, we're go- that they're going through for this short life that we have, it's tough, yeah. But compared with the joy that we'll have, the peace that we'll have when we're with Jesus forever, it's nothing. And so our attitude should be, Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks for everything that the Lord does for us. Now, looking back over Paul's letter here, first thing is all the concerns that we had for the church at the beginning, all the things that might happen to them, they're all gone. The church is flourishing. The church is strong. The believers are all going on for the Lord now. And it's because the Lord is building his church. And in fact, the Lord is building his church through this letter also. Look at what he's done through this. He's explaining doctrine to the believers, to the believers in Thessalonica, yes, about the rapture, about the day of the Lord, 
But he's also, because he's written the letter, he's explaining it to all believers ever since, including us right now. But also he's showing the heart of a shepherd. Think about it. Paul, Paul really loves the church here. And he could write down his love. He could talk about it. But we can see it here. And it's not just Paul's heart. It's the heart of Christ. And we're seeing Christ's love for the church in, in an example here. The way that Paul cares for the church. And here I, here I have a challenge for you. What is the most important thing in your, in your life? What's the thing is constantly on your mind? Something that whenever you have a free moment, you're thinking about it. It bothers you to no end if you can't get it done. For Paul, it was caring for others. To see them saved, to see them grow in their walk with the Lord, it's what dominated his life. It's what he was all about. And if we had this heart, if one of our priorities was to have the heart of Paul to live for others, it would be one of the best goals that we could possibly have. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you show us things here that if we didn't have your word, Lord, there's no way we could ever understand them. We pray that you would really give us a heart for others, Lord, to care for others, to show love and just show love for them, Lord. And we thank you for your own love, for the example that you've given us, Lord. We'll never understand the extent of the love that you've had for us. We thank you in your name. Amen.